Welcome to the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. I am Dr. Nicole Lowe, and with me is Dr. Stephanie Edmonds. We are both PhD-prepared nurses and the founders of Woman-Centered Health. Join us as we talk with health professionals and researchers who can help you improve your communication with patients about sexual and reproductive health. Please visit our website to learn more and connect with us on social media by going to www.womancenteredhealth.com. and welcome to the Women-Centered Health Podcast. Today we are speaking with Shannon Wilson, a licensed mental health counselor, about perinatal mental health. Perinatal mental health is always something that is important, but it seems especially important during this time. We also want to remind our listeners that you can support the WCH podcast and get a beautiful PDF of all of our show notes by becoming a patron of the Woman-Centered Health podcast. And you can learn more about doing that and becoming a patron by visiting our website at www.womancenteredhealth.com. Hi, Shannon. Thanks so much for being a guest on our podcast today. So um, we always start off with the basic question of if you could tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to do this and hopefully put some good information out there. So I feel kind of lucky. I always tell people that I always knew that I wanted to be a helper. And so from high school going forward, I knew that I wanted to be helping in mental health, social services in some capacity. And so I pursued my undergraduate degree in social work and graduated in 2005 from the University of Iowa with that. I worked as a case manager for a couple of years. And during that time, I realized it wasn't quite what I wanted. I couldn't quite devote the individualized attention and care and assist people in changing some of the things that were causing, you know, some of the constant struggles that they were facing. And so I ended up going back to graduate school in 2008 into the rehabilitation counseling program, specializing in mental health. And then I graduated in 2010 from there. And so I worked for a little bit in substance abuse And then that's when I worked with my first postpartum mama. And I really, really enjoyed the work. It kind of intersected with me becoming a mother myself. And so when I decided to open my own practice in 2014, that's when I started to pursue more education and get more experience in this area. And can you tell us a little bit about what you do now then? So I, my, I, I have a couple of roles. I co-own a group practice. And so a lot of what I do is just kind of day-to-day operations of the practice. And then I continue to see clients. I carry a pretty full caseload still. I see adults only. I don't see kids or teens. And for pretty much any presenting issue, but my expertise is in perinatal mental health specifically. So that means that I see women through all aspects of reproduction. So preconception planning to pregnancy to postpartum. I work with women dealing with struggles with infertility, dealing with perinatal loss, birth trauma, things like that. 
Thank you. So you kind of got into this a little bit in your previous response, but we always like to ask our guests what informs your perspective. So in other words, why do you do what you do and what is most valuable to you? So I, I love being a therapist. I feel so lucky that I get to do this work and that I get to be with people and help them in some of the most vulnerable times of their life. And so I am a relationship person. Relationships are really, really important to me. Just being able to establish that meaningful connection with my client, it fills me up. I get a lot of energy and fulfillment from that. And we know that in therapy, one of the biggest factors in change is the therapeutic relationship. And so that is, that's really, really important to me. Also, I'm, I'm kind of drawn to mothering uh, for whatever reason. I don't, I don't know. I think it kind of started when I became a mom myself about 10 and a half years ago now. But when I had my first child, it was such a transformative experience in so many ways, just from pregnancy to lactation to just all the changes that happened in my life from that point. And so I'm kind of drawn to being with women as they go through that that process. I don't think we talk about that enough. I don't think we talk about some of the negative aspects of motherhood. I don't think we talk enough about how our the way that we were mothered informs the way that we mother. And so I just, I really enjoy that part of it as well. And that absolutely informs the way that I see my clients and the way that I do my work. You certainly said a mouthful there about not talking about some of the negative aspects that come with mothering and normalizing that and Oh, this is going to be a good conversation. Okay, so today, like we said, we are going to talk about perinatal mental health. So let's jump right in. So I know that you mentioned kind of broadly what you see folks for, but can you start off by sharing a little bit more about your practice? Like, what are you most commonly speaking with pregnant persons about? So, gosh, this is really hard for me to answer, Nicole, because there are there are so many differences, too, between pregnant persons who are dealing with maybe a history of perinatal loss or people who are having a subsequent pregnancy after experiencing a perinatal mood or anxiety disorder. And so it just really varies. But I would say a lot of my work kind of centers around what they are, just what they're presenting to me, right? So a lot of times it's adjustment difficulties. A lot of times it's grief dealing with fertility struggles, dealing with loss, just dealing with changes to your role with to your body, all of that. There can be a lot of a lot of grief in that. And so a lot of what I do is is related to grief work. And then if it's someone who has had, for example, birth trauma or they've had a mood or anxiety disorder postpartum before, we do a lot of planning for their subsequent postpartum experience. So, you know, what can we do to mitigate risk and help them have a better experience this time around? So I would say it's really, really individualized based on what people are presenting with. 
So how has COVID impacted your clients' mental health during this time with all these issues that you talk about? That's a really good question. COVID has impacted everything. I think that there's more anxiety that's happening right now, right? Just in terms of actually like getting the virus, there's anxiety about all of the changes, all of the uncertainty that's going on. People don't know what to expect. They feel a lot of loss of control. I know kind of initially too, there was a lot of fear about the, about partners being able to go into the hospital and be there for birth. I think that pregnant and postpartum families are impacted really significantly in that they are more isolated and they're kind of being put in a position where they they have to make decisions that are really hard to make. So they have to decide, okay, do I completely isolate and not risk getting the virus or do I let people in and get some of the emotional and physical support that I need as I'm dealing with this major life change and then risk you know, physical illness as a result of that. And it's kind of an impossible decision. And so it's really, really impactful. People are experiencing a lot of decision fatigue right now. I think there's so many mental gymnastics that we're going through as we make like just everyday decisions, right? Like, well, should I stop at Starbucks? Oh, I don't know. Are they going to be open? Do I have my mask with me? You know, you have to kind of weigh all of the the risks and benefits of all of those decisions. And so people are really tired. They are really, really drained. I'm also seeing a lot, especially with the the political climate that we've been in and also the holidays coming up, families are suffering. Families are disconnected. People are at odds about how to handle this thing. And so people don't know how to how to talk to family members, they feel judged, they feel frustrated and resentful. And so it's bringing up a lot of that. And we're chronically stressed, right? Like that is just stressor upon stressor upon stressor is happening right now. Can you kind of, I know this is probably a really, a question that would lead to a very long answer, but, (laughs) but can you kind of walk us through generally how you help patients get through this time? It's a really unique time to be a therapist right now because as you know, I'm helping people, I'm also going through the same things. And so it's really hard to have to regulate myself all of the time while I'm in session too. So the first thing is doing that. Otherwise, I'm doing a lot of just kind of validating and supporting, reminding people that collectively we are all suffering right now this is not just them right it's it's kind of everybody everyone is suffering and we have to experience it and feel it in order to move through it giving per- people permission to grieve the losses that they're experiencing i don't like toxic positivity and i think that we get a lot of that on social media and you know like well yeah this is really this is bad but look on the bright side or think about what you're grateful for. And I absolutely know that there is space for that, but I also think there's space for feeling all of the the crap that we're dealing with. And then 
I've been telling people too, we talk a lot about boundary setting with other people in their lives. We talk a lot about assertive communication and then just kind of normalizing the fact that there really aren't any good decisions here. Like I'll often tell people like we have a menu full of shitty options right now. Like there are no, like everything on the menu is bad, right? And we have to kind of pick like what is the least shitty of all the things for us right now. And so you're not going to feel good about whatever it is you're choosing, right? If Do I send my kid to school? Do I not send my kid to school? I'm going to feel crappy about that no matter what decision I make. And so kind of reminding people that there's no good or bad, right or wrong, and just supporting them in the decisions that they're making. I think everyone needs to hear what you just said. I mean, you're when you say a menu of shitty options and no matter what you pick, you're going to feel shitty. I mean, could you have said that any better? I don't think so. (laughs) I really don't. I mean, that, that is so what's happening right now. Mm -hmm. And I was having a conversation with someone not that long ago, and you have mentioned this a couple times is grief. And I think when people think of grief, it's like, oh, you're grieving the loss of your infant or you're grieving the, the death of someone, but how much we're really grieving our previous lifestyle to the pandemic and grieving not being at work full time or these transitioning roles. Like you mentioned, like when you become a mom, that kind of can change some things. And Mm -hmm. so I think you highlight some really important things that we need to recognize that we need to expand our definition of grief and recognize that you can experience grief with these role transitions, with this lifestyle transition. So I just so appreciate what you just said. And and that's so true. I mean, there is just so much loss right now. You know, for the first, the start of the pandemic, I cried every single day, right? Like being at home just because there is so much loss, we are losing so much. And so I think being able to allow people to experience it and to name it, right? Because you feel a lot of things, but the last thing you think about is grief. And so being able to name it and identify, oh, yeah, that that is grief that I'm experiencing. I am sad about this. This is a loss. This is disappointing. This is hard. And then giving people the space to actually just kind of move through that so that they can do the things that they need to do. Can I ask you about, just in case our listeners don't know exactly what toxic positivity is, could you define that? And then also talk about how that is a little bit different than being, what's the word I'm looking for? Self- aware or, you know, expressing gratitude, that type of thing. Yeah, there's a lot of, I think in like popular culture, there's a lot of kind of looking for the positive and turning a negative into a positive and, you know, all of that stuff in order to reframe the way that you think or bring perspective or whatever. And I think there's absolutely space for that. But I think what often gets missed there is that people are having real feelings and that those feelings are valid and legitimate and normal. And so it's really minimizing and dismissive then to say, you know, someone who's lost a lot to say, okay, well, at least you have a job. At, At least you have a job that you can go back to or 
um, at least your kids are healthy or whatever, right? And I, I tell people a lot, when we're reframing and when we're trying to kind of challenge the way that we think about things, we're not necessarily going from a negative to a positive. We might be trying to go from a negative to a neutral, right? To try to decrease some of the emotional intensity, but that's only if it's distorted or if we're not really seeing it rationally and clearly, right? But related to COVID, we're seeing it pretty rationally and pretty clearly and it sucks. And so we're allowed to feel however we need to feel about that. And I think the more that we allow ourselves that space to feel it and move through it, the better. And there are absolutely exceptions, right? We can get really stuck in that mindset and and that's more problematic and more indicative that we, we need to do some work. But I think for most people, allowing the feeling and then moving forward is helpful. And that's different than showing gratitude or that kind of thing. Like we know gratitude, there's, there's research behind that that says that an attitude of gratitude can be really helpful. But again, I think it's the timing of it, right? It's not meant to be dismissive to what you might be experiencing. And most people kind of naturally, that's, that's the beauty of grief in general, I think, is I can tell when people are starting to move through their grief, when they start to find some meaning and purpose in it, right? And so they might start to see some some gratefuls in that. And so, but we have to allow that to occur and not stop it dead in its tracks. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And part of the reason I asked that is one of the questions that we had already planned on asking you is about minimizing and dismissive communication, particularly from healthcare providers and clinicians. So can you talk about that in the context then of pregnancy or postpartum period? What are you hearing from your clients as far as things that are really dismissive or minimizing? Yeah, there's a lot of things that can be minimizing and dismissive. And I could probably talk about this for, I don't know, days. But I would say anything that's like a platitude, I think people who are dealing with loss or dealing with fertility struggles, they often get, okay, well, everything happens for a reason or at least da-da-da-da-da. And rather than allowing those feelings to be there and that individual to kind of come to that on their own, we're uncomfortable with other people's difficult emotion, right? Like it's hard to sit with sadness or frustration or fear or uncertainty or anxiety. And so we can respond to that then by using those types of platitudes to try to make them feel better, right? And then they're not ready. They're not ready to go there. They're not ready to feel better yet. They just kind of want to feel what they're feeling. And so being able to take cues from them and say, okay, I'm, I'm just going to validate what your experience is right now. Like, yeah, I see that you're really sad about this. I get that. We don't have to try and fix what people are experiencing. And I think that's really important, that idea of fixing. And it's hard because as a provider or clinician, right, you 
do that because you want to, in essence, fix people. And so when you see someone broken in front of you, your natural tendency is, I just want to fix. And part of this also comes down to maybe a bit of emotional intelligence and that difference between sympathy versus empathy and recognizing that with empathy, you don't have to fix. You can just sit and feel with, and oftentimes that's more healing than, quote unquote, fixing it with these platitudes. It's huge. And I think that when providers can do that, it really builds respect and trust in the relationship. And it really helps them start to move through whatever it is they're experiencing. Yeah, I feel like the one that I've heard a lot, and I probably even said that myself early on in my career is, especially with patients who experience infertility, and then they get pregnant and have a loss, I'm saying, well, we know that you can get pregnant (laughs) as a kind of like, you know, silver lining to all this. And I think, of course, it's well meaning, but it's not validating how awful that would feel to have infertility, finally get pregnant and then experience a loss. So if you could just walk us through how you would handle that situation instead of saying, oh, at least you can get pregnant. Yes, that's a great, that's a great question. I think that even just being able to recognize and name what they are experiencing, right? Like you probably are really disappointed or I see that you're really disappointed and you're really sad. You're really frustrated, whatever, insert whatever emotion that you're kind of picking up on or that they have, that they have said. And there's always a little bit of a danger to that, right? Because you might be naming it for them, but then be open to them saying, well, no, I'm not sad. I'm mad, right? Be open to them kind of saying back what they are and validate that experience. And then, I mean, I think it is helpful information clinically to know, okay, well, you can achieve pregnancy, right? Like that's clinically, that's helpful information. And so even just saying, I know this isn't helpful for you right now, but I want you to know that for me, as your provider, it is helpful information going forward to know that you have the ability to to become pregnant. And so when I am looking at you and thinking about your care, this is helpful information for me. I like that. So we had actually talked with Dr. Stacy Pollack previously about infertility and perinatal loss. And I know you just gave us some communication tips that we can offer. What are some other tips to prevent additional trauma or stress? Or what are some even examples that you've heard of from providers that have added additional trauma or stress during this time? I think there's there's kind of, I don't know the best way to say this, so I'm probably going to stumble over my words here, but there's a lot of triggers and, and I, I don't want to say triggers, but more reminders, I guess, and more and trauma that's kind of built into the system, right? Like if you are a person who is dealing with fertility issues, or you have just experienced a perinatal loss, Going into a waiting room at an OB office, that in and of itself is really, really difficult. You're surrounded by pregnant women. You're surrounded by people who are happy and excited, and you are not, right? And so those visits to that that office then are very different for you than what 
you want them to be or what they, they are for other people. And so I think just having an awareness that women might be coming into their appointment with you already feeling a pretty intense level of emotion just because of the environment that is there. I've heard a lot of stories from women about staff at their providers' offices feeling really invalidated by their experiences with staff. And so I would say training your staff to talk with these these people over the phone. A lot of times they're having to call in, their charts aren't being pulled up. So they're having to kind of reshare or re-explain their whole entire story to the person that's answering the phone and trying to help them and answer their questions. Their concerns might be really minimized. They're not given as much information as what they need to have. So a lot of the work I do is working with women on how to advocate for themselves too with their providers. And so how can you how can you ask for what information you need in order to feel more in control or less uncertain about a really out of control and uncertain situation? And so a lot of like coaching and just kind of practicing. But I would say you want to make sure you're giving information, not too much information, because when you've just received really bad news or, you know, you're finding out that things aren't the way that you thought they were, you're flooded at that point and you can't really take in information. And so maybe even having the ability to have a follow-up appointment to just kind of re-go over information or, or look at the plan in a different way because a person can't be expected to remember everything when they're experiencing such high levels of emotion. And what you said has a lot of truth. So I recently experienced a miscarriage and I couldn't decide what was worse. The fact that I had a miscarriage or my provider called me kiddo. They said, you okay, kiddo? And I'm like, I am a 30-something woman with a PhD, two children, and you're calling me a kiddo? So there was the language they were using, like calling me sweetie, honey, kiddo. I'm like, y'all can just call me Nicole. If you need to call me something fancy, you can call me Dr. Lowe. But, But I felt like I couldn't even, I didn't say that because I didn't feel empowered enough to say that. So I just sat there and took honey, sweetie, kiddo while I'm dying on the inside. Yep. And then on top of it, the medication they gave me, they told me just to take it orally. They didn't tell me that I could take it vaginally or sublingually. Then, of course, I had let my friends know and they're like, is that should you really be taking that dose that way? So then I was reading a meta-analysis and I was prescribed the least effective dose with a way that has the most side effects. So then I had to call the next day because, and they didn't tell me any of the side effects. They didn't tell me that if I take it orally, chances are like I'm going to have some serious GI issues and there's going to be some really other unpleasant things coming from this. So the next day I had to call and be like, hey, like I read a meta-analysis. Can I take it vaginally? And they're like, oh yeah, we just usually don't prescribe it that way because most women don't feel comfortable taking it that way. I'm like, see, I didn't even get the option. And so in this was all these layers of 
what I was being called, what I was being diagnosed, the information I wasn't given on what to expect from side effects and how to take this medication. And, and again, I'm like, I don't know what was worse, the miscarriage or all this other crap that happened with it. Oh, and then when I went to get it, I had to go to two pharmacies because one couldn't pull up my information. And then they kept questioning me if my birthday was really my birthday. And I was like, yeah, I just decided that being a Gemini wasn't working out for me. So on your paperwork, I decided to change it. Like, are you, you know, so again, it's like all these things, that's staff, that's the pharmacy that are impacting this grief and terrible situation. And like those, none of that recognized. <laughs> like, no, none of it recognized. And oh. it's so, it's just frustrating the way that it can be handled sometimes. And the way that it's handled really, really impacts the perception of and, and their ability to cope and move through it in, you know, the healthiest way possible. And it also impacts their level of trust in their provider. And that is something that is really hard because that's one thing that I always encourage people is, okay, well, if you're having anxiety about this thing, or you're, you know, you're wondering about this thing, maybe you need more information. And I want you to have a provider that you trust, that you can talk to, and you can make your healthcare decisions with in an informed, collaborative way. And so when that trust is eroded, and it is because the office staff is a reflection of the provider, right, then it, it it's really hard for women to come back from that. It is. And I, so I don't live in a big city. So I'm in one of those areas where OB clinics are closing all over because it's rural and they're expensive to support. So now the clinic I need to go to is the only place that will deliver you in a 60 mile radius. So now you're really cutting off people. And so I'm in this disempowered state of like, well, I know I should go there, but at the same time, because I don't want to drive an hour for every prenatal appointment. So it really can compound stuff. And yeah, it's frustrating. Well, first of all, Nicole, thank you for sharing that story. I had obviously know about it, but thanks for sharing it publicly through our podcast. But I just want to recognize too that you are going to be one of the the most empowered people probably on the planet <laughs> in this situation. And in this time of grief and loss, you, you just can't be, and you shouldn't ex- be expected to be. So I just want our listeners to acknowledge that your patients, even the most empowered patient, is not going to be able to always speak up for themselves. And so we as clinicians need to be the ones who are acting appropriately in those times and therapeutically. Okay, so moving forward, thank you for giving me the platform to share that. Thank you for sharing that. It's yeah, yeah it's hard. It's so important. And I had, I had a miscarriage at 15 weeks with my third pregnancy. And it is so, so difficult. 
And it's one of those situations where it's a club you obviously don't want to join, but there's more people in that club than you recognize. And yes. it's like, once I said, oh, I had this miscarriage, I was like, all of a sudden, all these women are like, oh, me too, me too. To your point when earlier, Shannon, like nobody's talking about this. And it's like, I'm not saying we need a badge that says I miscarried. How about you? But again, this is something that we need to normalize and and talk about if this is happening at such numbers to which mm-hmm. it happens why aren't we communicating this to folks like this is a reality for you could be a reality for you and it's also you're not alone and I think you probably see this in your practice a lot is this feeling of like you're alone and you're the only one who's ever dealt with this and how isolating that is on top of the grief is really difficult I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I think that one of the things about perinatal loss in that's so different from other types of loss is this being this idea of like being kind of alone, right? Suffering in silence, because a lot of times, you know, there's so much out there that, okay, well, don't disclose that you're pregnant until 12 weeks, which I hate, by the way, I think it's, uh, everyone can do what they need to do, right? If you are more of a private person, and that's not something that you want to share with people, by all means, don't share with people. But if you are a person who's like shouting from the rooftops with excitement, like, oh my gosh, I'm so excited about being pregnant, then why not share that? Because then what happens is if you do experience a miscarriage, then you're not necessarily getting the support because then all of a sudden you have to disclose, okay, I'm pregnant and I had a miscarriage, right? And so I think that it can be, I think that that idea just promotes some stigma here and really perpetuates that idea of being alone and isolated and trying to to deal with all of those feelings by yourself. Yeah. I mean, my mom found out that I was pregnant the day I told her I had a miscarriage because I was, like you said, I was waiting to, oh, I want to make sure I have a picture and things are good before I tell everybody, even though I was really excited. So here I am calling my mom bawling and she's like, oh my God, what happened? And I have to tell her that I'm pregnant and not all in the same phone call, which super sucked. Yeah. And I had a friend who also had a miscarriage and she hadn't told anybody And she still hasn't even told anybody that she had a miscarriage because she hadn't told them that she was pregnant. And she's like, I feel so alone that I can't grieve with my family because I didn't tell them I was pregnant to begin with. And I'm Mm -hmm. like, so how terrible is that? Yeah, it's hard to go through that by yourself. And what's so baffling to me is that because it is such a common experience, we don't have to right? Like we don't have to go through it alone. You know, I've had clients who will say, I had no idea that my mom lost a baby or my mom had a miscarriage until I did. And then she told me. So then it's just kind of this thing that you, you carry and you're not able to share that burden with other people. And weirdly, it's so comfort. There's so much comfort that comes from knowing you're not alone. Yeah. Even just hearing the words, like you said, Shannon, like I had one at 15 weeks. Even just knowing that is somehow very therapeutic. Yeah, there's hope, right? Like, yeah. There, other people have been there and moved through it, and mm-hmm. you know, it's there's so much comfort in the human connection. Yeah, totally. Okay, so can we switch gears and talk about postpartum a little bit? Because 
that also uh, is very common. And we haven't touched on that necessarily yet. So we did a podcast episode with Dr. Courtney Floyd James, who is a nurse researcher. And she looked at postpartum depression screening tools and basically looked at ones that might be inappropriate or inadequate for certain populations. And she also talked about the importance of assessing postpartum functioning. So do you recommend any tools or just even questions that you ask that you think are helpful in assessing postpartum depression and postpartum functioning? So I am speaking from my experience working with my my clients in a private practice setting. And so I fully am aware that there's definitely bias and the way that I do things is not the way everybody should should be doing things or does things. And so with that aside, I don't use I don't really use a lot of screening or assessment tools. I I think that screening tools are really they can be really important and everybody that's coming into contact with women in the perinatal period needs to be screening and Postpartum Support International has some great screening recommendations on their website for pretty much any anyone coming into contact with with this population. And so if you want more information about like when to screen, then that's a great resource for you. I the Edinburgh is a really popular one, perinatal anxiety screening scale. That's a a popular one. But for me, I think assessment should be done by a licensed provider and preferably with someone who has experience and knowledge in this area. Although I'm fully aware that many areas don't have perinatal specialists. And so that's not always an option, but I don't use too many of those things. But I questions that I ask things like, are you experiencing anything right now that you don't like? Are you worried about how you're feeling? Is there anything that's worrying you about how you're feeling? And those are, they're just kind of, they're open and broad questions. And so sometimes I think it's easy for us to get locked into our, like, our assessment tunnels, right? Like our tunnel vision of, okay, well, here's the diagnostic criteria, check, check, check. And so we ask those specific questions, but also forgetting that she may not have much motivation, for example, but what really might be distressing for her are intrusive thoughts. And our questions may not quite address that. And so I think it's important to really say, okay, well, you're here, you, you sought this out tell me why, like, what is concerning you right now? Why are you taking time out of your busy postpartum motherhood to come and sit with me? And I think that that can just give a lot of information that's necessary. Shannon, can you repeat? I want to, I love this question that you said, and I want to make sure that it's on everybody's brain. The first question, and I'm going to butcher it, just so you know which question I'm talking about, but I want you to state it very nicely like you just did. I think this is so important and a great question. Is it was something to the effect of like, is there something you're experiencing but don't like? Yeah. Are you experiencing anything that you don't like? Or are you worried about the way that you're feeling? I love that. 
I do too. I do too. Cause you know, it's, when you said that thing about intrusive thoughts, I had those so badly after my first pregnancy. And again, I'm an educated, I've worked in OB-GYN. I had never heard of that, anybody having that. And I didn't want to tell anyone. Uh-huh. A, like I didn't think it was depression because I wasn't depressed, quote unquote depressed. Like I didn't necessarily feel sad. But I was having these intrusive thoughts and I thought, are they going to think that I'm going to do something to my child or, and so I kind of kept it all in. And then I saw counseling maybe a year or so later and I was telling the counselor about this and she was like, oh, that's postpartum OCD. And I had never even heard that was a thing. And so I think that's really important. Like if somebody would have asked me, is there something that you don't like? I might've said that would have given me an, an avenue to say, yeah, I'm having these weird thoughts. But they would just kind of do this quick little survey. Are you depressed? Are you anxious? That kind of thing. Yeah. Are you experiencing fatigue or anhedonia or, you know, and of course we're assessing for all of that also, but I think that it is important to really sit and listen as she shares what is going on. Well, and and how great of insight to recognize what a person is, I don't know if tolerating is the right word, but accepting or not accepting. Like, I accept that things down there are just weird. That's postpartum. But like Stephanie, I don't like that I'm having these thoughts and how telling that can be that might not be picked up on a scale. But I just think that question is really powerful. Yeah. And that is, I, I have to give credit to my mentor, I do mentoring with Karen Kleiman, who's she has a lot of books. She has great resources. She's the director of the postpartum stress center in Philadelphia. And that is, that's something that she talks about in her work. And so I have found it to be an incredibly useful tool. So within this postpartum space, this really opens up Uh, a lot for normalizing or dismissing. And so in many situations, you know, normalizing mental health and wellness is a goal and a good thing. But can you share with us how normalizing something can be harmful or how can we toe that line of normalizing without being dismissive? Yeah, I think that's a really, really good question because that does happen a lot. I think a, a big one that I hear frequently is that women might disclose that they are crying a lot or that they're experiencing a lot of anxiety or their moods are really shifting or they're not sleeping. And there's, yeah, the idea of, well, you just had a baby, so that's kind of the way it is. Or, oh, that's the baby blues. And it's important for providers to have the information about what baby blues is and what it isn't. Baby blues is a normative part of postpartum in the first two to three weeks. Baby blues will subside by week three. So it should be totally done, gone by week three. In our in our culture, we kind of use the terms synonymously of baby blues and postpartum depression. They are not the same thing. They are very, very different things. Baby blues, totally common and normal experience postpartum depression, not. So by week six at that OB checkup, if she's disclosing that she's having symptoms, then 
probably a good idea to send out for referral. The other thing that I always try to keep in mind is we're talking about people who are in a really survival season of life, right? Like those first months, that year, I know I, for a year after I have babies, I don't feel like myself, right? So we're talking about a season where you you are in survival mode and we're really, really good at pretending and putting on a facade and saying that things are okay. So if she's telling you that she's not okay, then she's not okay. Right. And again, you don't, you don't have to fix that for her. You don't have to do anything other than validate that and refer her. You know, and I tell providers all the time, if you're not sure, refer and I'll do an assessment and I'll evaluate. And I'm not in the business of keeping people in therapy who don't need to be in therapy. Right. So if it's just a simple assessment and like, yep, done, like you're, you're all good, then they can they can move on. But I think really, really having an understanding that if she's saying she's not okay, she's not okay. And being equipped with local resources to provide. I know a lot of my clients have had the experience of just being written a script that don't want to use medication, or maybe they're not opposed to medication, but they want to try other options first. And so I think it can feel really minimizing to just have a script written out and not be provided with additional treatment options like counseling. Some people don't even know that counseling is really an option. So they're like, well, shit, I don't want to take medication. So then they just don't follow through on getting that. And then they may never, uh, or they may, that may significantly delay their, their help seeking behavior. So I think making sure to know what the resources are, provide the resources, have those things at the ready for them if they, if they need that. And don't just say, well, this is normal. All people feel this way. There is a difference between common and normal. And so kind of differentiating between, yeah, postpartum depression is common, and it's not normal, right? And so there's there can be, you know, like you were saying, Nicole, about knowing that you're not alone as a person who's been through a miscarriage. It's the same thing. It's it can be helpful to know that it's common, but it's not necessarily normal. Can I ask about the kind of relationships you have with providers? Like what that looks like, how to do providers find you and do you communicate back and forth? It's taken me a while. I've been doing this work now for, well, since 24, January, 2014 and it's 2020. So I've done a lot in the community as far as trying to get the word out about perinatal mental health. I've reached out to providers. I will take information to them And so there are some that are really phenomenal referral sources. There are some that I've been able to collaborate with in terms of caring for clients, particularly if they have dealt with pretty significant birth trauma. And I'm trying to help advocate for them about, you know, how can you best work with this person? And so there are some who are really, really great and really open to that. And 
there are others who are who are less open. And I, I understand the the systemic limitations there, the amount of time. There's just not as much time to do those things. Those are not like reimbursed services as far as collaborating with a therapist. But I guess what I try to emphasize is I can be other therapists can be a useful tool for you, right? Because it doesn't have to be on you to provide the mental health care. You can be just kind of a point of contact and you can know the the resources and refer out. And so I can be helpful to you in that capacity because that's not your area of expertise and I don't expect that, but it is mine. And so I can help in that way. Oh, I love how you frame that as very complimentary. And I want to talk about this issue of time. So we fully recognize that most clinicians are working within a system that doesn't allow for extended appointment times. So how can providers create connection or what tips do you have for providers when it comes to discussing perinatal mental health during short visits? I would recommend discussing mental health early and often. So making sure that that is something that you're addressing from the very first visit and kind of talking about in every every visit thereafter. And I know screening can be kind of hit or miss, but the way that screening is done can be incredibly problematic. You know, I know when I was getting prenatal care and recently I went to my doctor's office and had a physical and it's kind of like, you know, they ask you those questions really, really cautiously and like they're checking a box, right? Because this is uncomfortable stuff to talk about. And I think for a lot of providers too, there's a fear of, okay, well, if I, if I bring this thing up, then what do I do? Like, I don't know, what do I do if they say yes, that they are struggling or what if they say they're suicidal or what if they say they're having thoughts about hurting their baby, right? Then it's kind of like, okay, well, what do I do with that? And so I totally understand the, like the nuances here, but I think that instead of, are you depressed, right? Even just prefacing that with, it can be really common for people who are postpartum to experience symptoms of X, Y, and Z. It's really important that if you are experiencing those kinds of symptoms, that we are addressing that and that we are making sure that you're getting the care that you need. And I have really good people that I work with that can help us with that if we need if we need that type of care. Are you experiencing anything like this? Is there anything going on that's concerning to you? I like how you frame that as like symptoms-based because I think even if someone asked me, are you depressed? That comes off a lot different than if it's like, hey, are you feeling really unmotivated? Are you having trouble sleeping? Are you, you know, worried about this? That I can much more easily identify with those symptoms more so than my ability to, to call it depression or to, I mean, there's power in calling it something. But I think when you're establishing that, look, I think there's a difference in how you frame that. And I really appreciate your discussion on common versus normal and that those are not the same things. I think that was a really great point you made. Yeah. And I think just making mental health a part of routine physical health care as well. And again, not that you necessarily have to be the person who does all of it. 
but being a point of contact, a point of, of reference for that to refer out to other, other professionals. Well, and Stephanie, correct me if I'm wrong, I feel like a lot of what you're saying is really what Dr. Floyd James was saying, this early often and how we talk about it and how women, going back to when you talked about how they just throw a prescription at them and say, well, here's some medication and how dismissive that can be. So it's interesting to kind of parallel what you're saying with what Dr. Floyd James was saying. I was actually going to bring that up to Nicole because she also, the thing that I thought was so cool was she is a pediatric nurse practitioner. So she's seeing babies and children and then she became interested in postpartum mental health because she sees the, the parents and the moms that are bringing their kids in. And so they're, the parents aren't necessarily her patient. But that's a, a lot of the time when we seek, like when we're pregnant, we just stop after that six-week postpartum appointment. And it's all off about baby then. And nobody checks on mom, which of course the mom, you have to support the mom because she's supporting the baby <laughs> or the parents. And so I just, you know, so even, even though our target audience for our podcast isn't necessarily pediatricians, that they are probably really important at that at that point to kind of intervene. Well, it's point of contact. Yeah. That's when women are having contact with the medical system. Yep, absolutely. And I think that I, I love that. I love that she was on and that she's interested in doing that work because they are the people that are seeing parents in that time frame. And so they are are a really unused opportunity, I guess, for intervention for families. And so I've, I will actually get, there are a few pediatricians locally that refer quite a bit. And I think that is so awesome and so helpful. Well, and I think it was kind of one of those, I don't know if you call it a duh or an aha moment, but when she said, when you look at ACEs, for kids, so many of them are dependent on what happens to the parents. Mm -hmm. And so she's like, if I want to improve the health of my patients, the children, I can't ignore the impact that parents have on these kids. And when she said that, it was like, yes, of course, but we, they're not thinking like that. Like it was just one of those moments Mm -hmm. that just made so much sense. And so, yeah, calling all pediatricians. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, I would, I would agree. And they're, again, going back to the PSI recommendations, they have that as part of their, their screening recommendations. So as we're talking about that resource, what are some other tools or resources that our listeners can access to learn more about perinatal mental health? Yes. So Postpartum Support International is a great resource. So they're an international organization. They also have state chapters. Uh, Each state has, not each state, but many states have chapters, and they have information on their website about local contacts where you can call to get resources. They also have lists of providers on their website. They have support groups uh, on their website. And then one thing that I really love that they're doing is they're offering a perinatal psychiatry consult line. So it's a, it's a line for physicians 
to ha- do a physician to physician consult. So they can call and get information about medication or any other aspects of treatment in this population. There's a pretty significant gap in terms of perinatal psychiatry because OBs don't necessarily have the psychiatry background and psychiatrists are often more uncomfortable or not as knowledgeable about providing medications during pregnancy and lactation. And so there's just kind of a gap in in services. And so this is a really great tool that can be used for physicians that would want to use that. I have another question that we didn't have already planned, but got me thinking about with COVID, maybe the positives in all of this. I'm assuming that most of your work now is via Zoom or whatever platform you're using. And I see that my biggest struggle with seeking counseling when I was postpartum is that you just don't have the time. Like you're always with this baby. And then if, you know, if you're working, the baby's at daycare, but you're working. So you either have to take time off work or find other childcare arrangements. So do you kind of foresee like with COVID, maybe mental health professionals extending that, the tele-mental health part of it? Yeah. I don't, I'm not even sure where to start with that, (laughs) Stephanie, because (laughs) I have a lot of thoughts about this. Okay. So just bear with me as I, as I run through them. So first of all, I think that more than likely there will be more utilization of telemed services. Insurance wasn't really wanting to pay for it prior to COVID. That is happening now for most uh, payers. Teletherapy is a really great resource. I'm very glad that we have it, um, particularly now. That being said, I am, I I don't know if I'm old school. I I don't know, but I like to be in the room with someone. I get so much information from the energy and just from our connection. I use a lot of immediacy in session with my clients. And so some of that is lost with lag time and I can't see their whole bodies. And so for me personally, I will never fully do telemed, but might continue to offer it as a resource if necessary. I always allow parents to bring their babies in arms with them to session if needed. And it can actually be a really great assessment tool when babies are with their their moms. You know, if you have someone, the baby's sitting there and you're talking with mom and the baby makes a sound and then mom is like, oh my gosh, see, they, they always do this. They always, they always do this. Then that's a great thing to kind of use and check out like well what what is it that they're doing and tell me why that's why is that distressing for you and you know it, there's so much information to be gleaned from watching the interaction in that dyad so i always allow babies to come to session as well because it absolutely can be a barrier so i i fully respect and know that there are a lot of barriers to in-person counseling and telehealth can mitigate some of that. But I will always much prefer to see people in, in the room. 
A nice mix. Yes. Yes. (laughs) But I think, I think Nicole and I talked to someone else. Like, I feel like now that telemedicine is reimbursable, they are not going to be able to go back on that. Yep. (laughs) But I agree. I think there needs to be a mix of it. Yeah. Thinking of like where Nicole lives, that's a lot harder to access professionals like yourself. Mm -hmm. Yes. I think there's space for it. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Like there's a need for it. There's space for it. Okay. So we had a beautiful conversation and you've given so many great tips, tricks. I'm just wondering, what is the one thing you would want all clinicians to know about perinatal mental health? This is your platform. What would you want to share with everyone? No pressure or anything. I would say that don't think that this doesn't apply to you or to your practice, right? Because if if you are a provider who's coming into contact with women in the perinatal time period, so pregnancy, postpartum, this is an issue that will impact your practice. And just because you may not be assessing for it or it may not be disclosed doesn't mean that it's not there. And so I, the one thing that I would want all providers to, to know is just to have a basic sense of what this is, what are things to look for, and then what are your local referral sources so that you can intervene early and get these families the help that they need. I like that. Yeah, that's really powerful. Just saying that if you, mm-hmm. this this applies to you, I think it's impactful. Mm-hmm. I have a question. So we had a mutual friend connect us to Shannon. What is it that you do that you feel makes women just feel so heard? How can they establish that trust and that hearing relationship? I think for me, it's important to be myself when I'm providing care to my clients. So, I mean, obviously I have really good boundaries and I'm not, you know, doing a ton of like self-disclosure and it's about them and it's not about me, but I am myself when I'm working with my clients too. And so I think that people respond well to authenticity and they respond well to, they know if you're bullshitting them, right? Like they know if I'm like faking empathy for them. And I think that people respond well to a provider also who's confident in the information that they have and to the, in their approach. And so I think that people feel safe knowing that at the risk of sounding like super egotistical here, like I know what I'm talking about. And I think that people respond well to that. Well, Shannon, I would personally like to thank you so much for your time and your commitment to advancing sexual and reproductive health through communication. Do you have any last thoughts that you would like to add before we end? Thank you for letting me be part of this. It's an awesome platform to be able to talk with providers. It's kind of one of the the things that I would love to do more with is to be able to talk with providers and be more of a resource in that capacity. So um, I'm grateful for the opportunity here. 
Well, thank you so much, Shannon. Yeah, thank you guys. And as always, we hope that you enjoyed another episode of the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. We are always looking for new supporters, sponsors, and guests. So if you'd like to be on our show or know someone who you think would be perfect, let us know. You can find more information on how to support us and contact us on our website at www.womancenteredhealth.com. Oh,